Hey Kyle, this is Ellie, coming from Aspen, Colorado. I am currently looking at some mountains, just did a workout. I tore my ACL this spring, so just focus on getting stronger and healing. About to go to the river and take an ice bath because the water's fucking cold out here in the Rockies. Um, yeah, practicing that blue mind to stay sane through everything right now. Um, I know things can be overwhelming with everything going on, but I hope you all can do something for yourself today. Do something for somebody else. Educate yourself. Be as active as you can while also, you know, of course, taking care of your own mind. So, um, yeah, I hope you all have a rad day. Thank you for everything you've done so far and every how you've educated everyone else out there. So we appreciate it. I hope you keep going. Someplace warm. Someplace where the beer flows like wine and the women instinctively flock like the salmon of Capistrano. I'm talking about a little place called Aspen. Sorry, Ellie. I could not help myself. Aspen is a beautiful place. I'm glad you're doing cold plunges. I hope you're healing up quickly. Got to picture yourself getting better. That's the trick. And, and lay off the booze. Booze will slow your healing time down significantly. I'm going to read a little bit out of a book called Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim by David Sedaris. He's one of my favorite authors, and he is the author of the June Box of Goodies, where I send you a book that I love along with some potent Santa Cruz Medicinals CBD tincture that I use before I go to bed every single night. So if you want to get more reading in your life, if you want to support this podcast and you trust my uh, book recommendations, you can head over to my website, kyle.surf slash box of goodies and get yours today. So David Sedaris is talking about um, a time when he was a kid uh, being at school and a bully threw a rock directly at his face. And he just walked into the door with a bloody mouth and his dad saw what happened. So this is his dad talking. All right. My father demanded I retaliate. Saying I ought to knock the guy on his ass. Oh, Dad, I'll baloney. Clock him on the snot locker and he'll go down like a ton of bricks. Are you talking to me, I asked? The archaic slang aside, who did my father think I was? Boys who spent their weekends making banana nut muffins did not, as a rule, excel in the art of hand-to-hand combat. David Sedaris is such a funny writer, and he will bring levity to your day. I didn't used to be a reader. And now I'm a big one. And I'll tell you how I started. I committed to reading 10 minutes every morning before I turned my phone on. So if you want to get on the box of goodies or if you just want to get more reading in your life, that's the trick that I used and it really worked. I want to send a huge thank you out to the Nell Newman Foundation. The Nell Newman Foundation sponsors bold, unpopular ideas. And they, this month, are supporting Save the Waves Coalition. They're they're one of my favorite organizations, and um, I've been involved with them forever. So what I'm doing right now with this ad is shining the spotlight on Save the Waves. They protect coastal environments around the world. They're extremely effective, and their director, Nick Strongsfetich, is a great guy. So here is Nick and a recent win that Save the Waves had. Hey, Kyle. This is Nick from Save the Waves calling in here. Uh, As you know, Save the Waves is dedicated to protecting surf ecosystems around the world. And 
we have some pretty good news from the place where you learned how to surf in Santa Cruz, Cowles Beach. For over 10 years, it's uh, routinely been classified as California's dirtiest beach. And thanks to our efforts, along with our partners at the city and county of Santa Cruz, we've been able to bring the bacteria and contamination levels way, way down. And this year, finally, it has been uh, taken off the list of Heal the Bay. So our efforts are actually bearing fruit. And uh, it's nice to have some good news to share every now and again amidst the horrendous news that seems to be surrounding us on a daily basis. So thank you for your support as an ambassador. And we're also really thankful for the Nell Newman Foundation for supporting us. And if people want to learn more about Save the Waves, uh, go to savethewaves.org. This episode of the podcast is with John Rose. John Rose is the founder of Waves for Water, an organization dedicated to bringing clean drinking water to everyone in the world who needs it. Needs it. So please give it up for the founder of Waves for Water, John Rose. You're someone who I've wanted to connect with for a while, and uh, and when I first met you, we were down in Mexico sharing tubes at a secluded tubing point rake, um, and uh, probably got about 15 barrels apiece that day, and it wasn't the time to talk about uh, humanitarian crises. We were just throwing mega shakas and then um, haven't really talked to you since, but um, that was quite a day, man. Yeah, you know, I... It's funny because we had that trip planned for months and it was nowadays with forecasting and stuff, you just, you just strike swells. Right. And, um, <clears throat> that one was on the books regardless. It was very waves for water centric. Like we were going to go down there and help this one community that I've been going to for 20 years and, and surf. And I knew that that time of year we'd get surf and, um, but I didn't expect anything like it's so hard to time it, you know, tides, wind, swell, all that stuff. And it was almost like, uh, you know, Taylor Paul is. I love Taylor Paul. Yeah. yeah former okay. editor of surfing magazine. Exactly. Like Mavericks uh, Hellman. Mavericks Hellman. Taylor's a good friend. And, and, um, he, he has this funny quote that he came up with when I was on a trip with him in, in, uh, Liberia where, where we went and, we surfed. It was a surfing magazine feature that we did. And, and, um, at the end of the trip, we went to a casino and I was, I think I started with like five bucks and then was up like 500 in this Monrovia beat down casino slash hotel kind of casino. I don't even know what was going on, but, and he just kept looking at me going, you motherfucker. I, what? He, he's like, you fucking karma chips. We put out this whole like thing, like of course you're getting you're up because you're doing all this good and this karma chips, you know. And so funny because when we scored in in Mexico, um, just those random five days that that we were there, you know, and I brought one of my best friends and oldest homies Ben Bourgeois down there with me, and um, and then it was the uh, Todd Perdonovich and Grant Ellis from Surfer. And, you know, we were, we were doing our implementations for waves for water. The, the, the waves were really average. And then just karma chips, just ta-da. And it was some of the best waves I've had ever. And 
specifically in the last 10 years for sure, because I just haven't been hunting surf and it was crazy. I mean, we got like hundreds of barrels. <laughs> yeah. What was so special about that day too, was that, um, it was perfect how to high barrels and there wasn't much of a current, which is so rare when you get those point breaks where you're getting like two or three barrels on a wave. Usually you're just gas because it's like a river going down, but it was really unique. And there, there was that little zone that would kind of just convey your belt back out. And it was such a good vibe, man. It's, I love when there's, um, when there's no supply and demand issue and there's totally. perfect waves, that's a really special quality that you don't always get because you can get pumping waves, but then there's a million guys out and it just creates a different, a different vibe in the water. But that was a, that was a special one. I was down there with my buddy, Kyle Boothman, who I actually learned how to surf with, um, when I was a little kid and Cliff Capono, who's a scientist and a great surfer as well. I think I missed Cliff cause I had to leave the next day. Right. Um, Cliff came the next day. Yeah, exactly. But you guys were telling me he was coming. Um, yeah, it was one of those special, I was looking over at Ben just going, and we've shared so many good waves together over the years, same as you and Kyle probably. And, uh, we just looked at each other and we're like, it, we had this unspoken affirmation about this sort of philosophy that we both really live by, which is don't force it. Like just go with the flow. It sounds cliche or it's been said a million times, but really this day and age with everybody trying to manipulate and, and manufacture everything that they want. Um, we just, we, 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 we have this constant kind of bantering back and forth about just like not forcing things and just going with the flow completely. And, and let's go down to Mexico and so what the swell forecast doesn't look good or whatever, you know, and just, and let's get drunk tonight if we want to get drunk tonight or not, not take things so, too seriously. So all of a sudden you find yourself in that magic moment that could have never been manufactured. So, um, Kyle Boothman is a filmmaker and also a great surfer. Um, he and I both grew up, you know, wanting to be pro surfers. And then along the way, we both found film and, you know, he, he's a great shooter. He does stuff for vice and ESPN and, um, uh, CrossFit games. Then I, I went into journalism and we've had these conversations before about how, because we have this other thing that we do, it allows us to enjoy surfing more like though, like that day. That's what I'm saying. Like there was such a special vibe about that. There was no forcing. There was no like, um, pro surfer angst that is yeah, so totally. common, you know? And, and I've seen that a lot where there's, there's guys who, are they're uh, incredible surfers the waves are perfect and they are incapable of enjoying themselves because they're thinking about how much they need to get that shot to secure their next contract and it in a lot of ways kind of just puts a, a big damper on the whole parade yeah and i mean i'm sure you can relate with this as well but i mean i've been there like i i remember that feeling i've had that feeling i was that guy i i remember you know contracts in flux and then all of a sudden get a cover and you're good for a couple more years or whatever it is. And it's like completely takes all the fun out of it. Um, but it, it also allows you to keep doing what you're doing. So, and you, and you do ultimately have fun. It is your job and you love it. And it's like, so I understand it, but couldn't agree with you more, you know, when you have, when you transcend that world and I don't know about you, but for me, it really took like, I had this death of one thing and sort of birth of another. Um, 
not in such finite and clear cut terms, but like more so the identity crisis. So I had the full, I, I'm John Rose, a pro surfer. That's what I thought I, you know, cause that's just what I was in my early years. And that's what I identified with. And then when I wasn't that anymore, I was like, who the hell's John Rose? And I had to like find out who it was. And it's not that John Rose is, is now waves for water. I've slowly developed a greater sense of self through all of these chapters. Um, but I think it's imperative to transcend the, these chapters. You have to transcend the chapter to then go on to the next one and then gain perspective from that one and a greater sense of self and so on and so forth all the way to the next and the next. And hopefully at the end, you have like some awesome book. Yeah, I could not agree more. And it, and I think that it can become really challenging for young people who gain a lot of accolades early on and they have this public facing life and people are like, bro, you're killing it. You're 16 years old. You got this cover and you have companies that are telling you that you're the man. And then once that, you know, career starts to recede away from you, it can be very difficult to loosen your grip and learn new skills. Um, so I, I commend you for even noticing that because I think that it's the first step to stepping out of the identity, learning new skills, and then ultimately like gaining a new kind of love and passion for life because you get to be a beginner at something again, which is so oh. fun. Like the oh feeling of going from full kook to not so much of a kook is the best feeling because whatever it is, whether or not it's, you know, uh, work like waves for water or writing or, you know, tap dancing, like you get to experience these, these exponential leaps and bounds in growth, which is just so good. And, and you see a lot of people too, that are at the top of their game at one discipline and they have another thing that they kind of suck at just to keep that part of their brain going that kind of beginner's mind in um you know muscled up and then strong i think that's like you're speaking my language for one it's and that that's like the key to uh vitality like like retaining vitality in this life uh, despite your aging process so the key to vitality is becoming a kook over and over and over again that is the key because and the key to, to the fountain of youth, staying young and all this kind of stuff. And most people don't don't do new things as they get older because it 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 feels kooky. It feels it's challenging and and people just continue to do the things that they do best because it feels good to be good at something. And I, I've said this a million times. I mean, I moved to Truckee totally taking a page out of Jerry Lopez's philosophy, you know, the bend organ movement. And I, and it was the aha moment where I was like, Oh, I remember. Cause I remember when he moved up there back in the day and I was like, he's a pipe master. How the hell does he live in Oregon? It just didn't make any sense to me. I was so tunnel vision on surfing. Um, and then now I'm like, Oh, the sensei, of course, you know, because it's, there's so much at your disposal and, and so much on a physical level too. And for me, like, I love writing. I love photography. I love, a lot of other things that aren't maybe necessarily so physical, but I still probably just like you, I mean, I'm just an adrenaline junkie, you know, I need to get that fixed, whether that's surfing or motorcycling or climbing or um, hiking, snowboarding, mountain biking, anything. <clears throat> and most of those things I've listed, I'm, I'm a novice at, you know, cause I focused so wholeheartedly on surfing for so long and then dove head over heels, head first into waves for water 
um, where I was still, I definitely exercised my passion for motorcycling and things that I could do in other countries uh, while I was doing that work. But now, only now at 42, am I like full on 10 year old grommet with like five things. And the, what you said, that that stage from going from kook to not so much of a kook, which is basically the early learning curve, right? The learning curve is steep. It's super steep. So I remember when I did my first cutback and I came home and I was like, dad, let's do my first cutback. And, you know, and it was so it's this huge, profound thing or my first head dip barrel or whatever, you know, as a surfer, I'm having that now as a 40 year old or in my forties with snowboarding and backcountry snowboarding. And, and I just got home a few days ago from uh, like a multi-day backcountry splitboarding, you know, adventure is only my second one I've ever done. It's like learning at hyper speed, a million things. And that is the key to a long, healthy, vital existence, in my opinion. In my case, I'm actually afraid when a friend tries to introduce me to a new sport. Like my buddy Tyler Fox, he's a big wave surfer, and he's gotten super into split boarding over the last couple of years. And he's always trying to get me to come up there. He's like, dude, you have no idea. It's so sick. You're around no one. It's absolutely silent. And then you get these powder runs with no one around. And I'm like, dude... I know I would love it, but I'm trying to get good at hunting right now. Like I just, like I'm, I know my personality and, and I know also people who I respect. And I, I know that we have a similar kind of personality makeup. So the shit that they're into, I would also for sure be into. And at this point, I'm just like, okay, I just need to get my shots because there's just so much fun stuff. There's not enough time and there's so much fun stuff, but Dan, that's a good problem to have. Well, yeah, and that's why, like, back to the trucky thing is, is there is only so much time in the day, and about five of those things I listed are at my fingertips here, so I can actually do more. I can actually fit more in and put proper time towards it, as opposed to like having a mission somewhere and then you got to do, you know. So it's just all right there. The only thing I don't have at my fingertips is surf. But um, like I was, I surfed yesterday in Ocean Beach. I just, you know, I was down there for a day and, and got a session in. And, and so I, I'm, gonna, I'm surfing a little bit here and there. I mean, I honestly, the last 10 years, I've probably surfed like, I surf like maybe on average a handful of times a month. Maybe um, if you average it out, go three months or four months without doing it and then maybe do a trip for, for a week. But um but it's on in the next chapter and, and I'm so in love with surfing still. And I, I appreciate it so much. And I, and I, um, I, I mean, I have so much fun with it still, but I just, it's not my, it's not my addiction. It's not my priority. As long as you can stay fit enough to get tubed when it's tubing, you're all good. Yeah, right. totally. Yeah. And, I, there, there's something to be said, um, also about what you, what you just referred to, um, living close to adventure i think is a yeah. huge signifier of quality of life like not having to drive for three or four hours to go do that thing that you love i mean it's 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 nice if you have some podcasts but man it's really nice if you can uh be 15 minutes away from a few activities that that get your rocks off and then you can be back home and do the rest of the day of work like i don't know about you but for me like if i'm only adventuring i start to feel this kind of sense of of angst like an existential angst that i'm not getting work done that i know i should be doing 
Like on my best days, sure. I wake up early and I will write for two or three hours and then I'll go out and I'll go surf or spearfish or hunt. And like, there's, there's something very deeply satisfying about activating both parts of, of my brain, you know, intellectual and also athletic. Oh, a- absolutely. I mean, and, and that you hit the nail on the head being up here for me this winter, for example, uh, I was very busy with work before the whole thing happened and, um, can easily get caught and consumed by it. But, uh, it's similar. I, I, I almost feel like it's like you're living on the, on the water in, in the North shore and you can just go out and tap that, that, you know, fix that you need. So I'd go up to sugar bowl or up to squaw or Alpine or something like that for two hours, get some laps in, be home by nine or sorry, be home by 11 you know, get there at nine, be home by 11 and have an entire full day of work and, and still, and not only do my work better, but just feel like ultimately more balanced. Yeah. It was just like at my fingertips and that now was there in the winter and now it's hiking and mountain biking and motorcycling and just hike, you know, I'm just like always outside and, but it doesn't have to be this all day affair, even less time than when it was focused solely on surfing. Because surfing is a little bit more involved, unless you are right on the sand somewhere and you just go out for a quickie. But um, you know, when I lived in Orange County, and it'd be like, oh, the waves are pretty small. I'm gonna go down the ocean side. Like that's a whole day thing. Even though I'm surfing for a couple hours, and and then I, and then you start to have that kind of existential angst or whatever. You're like, uh, I should be doing other things or whatever. So yeah, you're you, you hit the nail on the head. Just having having things that you're having adventure at your fingertips allows you to be able to thrive in in and and feed the the need for that adventure, but also thrive in your work and anything else you're doing. One thing that is I think is cool um, about deeply focusing on on a, one discipline when you're young and getting really good at it. Um, is that it teaches you what it takes to get good at something. So you don't have any kind of delusions of grandeur about what it's actually going to take to get to a certain level. Like you're getting into snowboarding and mountain biking. You you know how many hours it will take to improve. And I think that people um, don't realize that you don't actually need to dedicate your entire life to something to get pretty good at it. Like if you put in an hour a day, five days a week at anything, you're going to get better at it. The problem comes, I think, with most people, you know, and a lot of people get frustrated with surfing around this because they're just like, I can't, I, I've been surfing for three or four years and I still can barely get out there and catch waves. And I'm like, yeah, but you, you do it like once every 10 days and you're, yeah. it, it takes more than that to actually begin to improve. Um, so for you, you know, you, you put a huge amount of time in surfing early on. So you actually know what it takes. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And there's a, there's the rule of 10,000 hours, you know, and that's like a, it's a known sort of formula and it's true. It, if you, there's no shortcuts. If you want to be good at something, it's, it's massive, massive investment in repetition. It's just repetition. I mean, I'm, I'm reading this book right now that cited, um, Michael Phelps and like the um, like his routine before his winning years or the when he got all those golds and um, 
there's this really interesting bit on routine being, um, I've always felt like routine was kind of a bad thing. Like for, for me and my personality and like, I'm not part of that. I don't routine. Cause it just sounds boring. And, and, and this thing I read today was something to the effect of like routine in an intelligent man is, um, I can't remember the word it used, but it, it, basically it's saying that it, it was like the highest sense of adventure or the highest sense of achievement you could have is through routine. And ultimately what it's saying is repetition or the rule of 10,000 hours. Routine is just visualization carried out in physical form, right? If you, if you visualize something over and over and over and over, like you've gone through your routine, you set yourself up to win. It can work so much in your favor. It doesn't have to be a boring thing. It actually can make it more exciting if you're able to visualize all those things happening before they happen and then you carry them out. I mean, there's a lot of studies on visualization and all this kind of stuff, but um, I it was just a cool little shift for me to think about that word and what that means because I've been very routine lately for the first time in my life. And I'm way more productive than I've ever been. I'm way more centered, way more balanced, um, having more fun than I've ever had. Um, so it's it's just an interesting shift. You know, I, I, I don't know. Like it's, it's come from a lot of sources. 100%. And it's so hard to have routine as a pro surfer because you are at the whims of the waves and you have no idea what you're going to do next week. I was in Ireland about a year ago uh, on a, a Patagonia trip with Greg Long and I had a chance to interview Fergal Smith, who um, is the slab hunter who was getting a ton of publicity, having a great professional surfing career. And then he dropped all of it to uh, become a permaculture farmer. And now he does not travel by plane. He'll only travel by boat. And I asked him what that shift was like. And he said, you know, it feels really good when someone asks me if I can be at their wedding in three months to be able to say yes. <laughs> by boat. By boat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no. to be able to plan out a year, there's something to that. Um, one of my, there's a Bruce Lee quote that is, um, Beware not of the man who has 10,000 moves, but the man who has one move who has practiced it 10,000 times. Oh, yeah, exactly. I might be butchering it right there, but it's, um, but it's something along those lines. So when, you, when you're doing Waves for Water, clearly you say you're traveling 10 months out of the year, going to all these disaster zones. It's, I mean, some of the areas, like I it sounds like chaos. Like I want to know what it's actually like when you get down on the ground in one of these disaster zones. Are there any, like, was there any kind of mindset that you adopted that was routine for you or set of questions that you would ask yourself when you would get down on the ground or, you know, people that you would prioritize interacting with first that did give you some kind of semblance amidst all this chaos? Yeah. You know, it's a good question. I, I, it was total trial by fire. Um, you know, I got really thrust into that world by accident or not accident, however you want to look at it. Um, but once I realized that that was like definitely one of my callings and something that I really wanted to pursue, I just went full head first into it the same as you would have, like you were, you know, as a kid, I was like, oh, I want to be a pro surfer. That's what I want. And 
it was a one track mind. So for me, it was really like, I want to, I, 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 I kind of brought the same competitive spirit too. You know, I'm like, I want to win at this, but I don't want to win against other humanitarians or other organizations, but I want to win against the crisis itself. Like I want to beat it. And I got really like channeled a lot of that sort of athleticism mentality into it. And I guess to answer your question, the, the beginning, I was very lucky because the first sort of proving ground um, stage that was set for me was Haiti. And that was 2010. Um, I went down for two weeks, thought I was going for two weeks, stayed for two years. Was that right and, after the earthquake? Yeah, it was a couple of days after the earthquake. I I had only started the organization a few months prior in when I was in Padang in, in Sumatra and caught in a big earthquake there, um, which totally rattled me and changed my life and um, really set me on this path. But that was sort of like the inception of it. And then if if you want to talk about like, or let's say that's patient zero. And if you want to talk about like, the practice starting and like how the organization formed and and actually the path developing it was haiti so that was the the spark and then the fire was haiti um which was the sequence was a few months part it was october of 09 that that sumatra happened and then really shortly after it was january um 12th um uh, 2010 that Haiti happened and I got called saying, Hey, you know, is what you did in Indonesia viable for Haiti from somebody who was putting together a relief team. They wanted to provide medical food and water. And, um, I said, yeah, I mean, as far as I knew, I, I, I bought 10 filters with my own money, went to Indonesia on a total pet project, like, Oh, this will be fun as a surf trip. I was going to help these villages I'd been to before, like call a waste for water, whatever. Um, then I was thrust into a, a first responder mode because I was caught in the earthquake just by coincidence. So it went from like this kind of neat idea that was definitely not going to be my job. That was just going to be like this little pet project to full extreme situation, first responder um, that polarized my life, changed it and was like, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And then two, three months later, somebody seeing some press on that, while they were putting together their team for Haiti, asking me if I would go down and I, and I said yes, and they handed me 40 grand. So it went, if you think about that as a trajectory, that's pretty crazy. You know, like I bought with $100, I bought 10 filter or $200, I bought 10 filters, implemented those. That was, that was pretty amazing, that whole experience in Padang. And then like got home, totally rattled, raised money, uh, through friends to get 300 more filters or as many as I could to go back to Padang, which I did, um, help out there. Cause that was all I was obsessed with. I didn't have a 501c3 yet. I didn't have an organization. I didn't have any, I didn't even have a vision. I just was like, I know I want to, I felt that so intensely that, and I saw the impact that could be made from very little. So I'm going to try and get as many as I can back there, which I did. Then I got home and it was like a month later and Haiti happened. And then somebody's giving me 40 grand to do the exact same work. And so I thought I'd go down for two, two weeks, stayed for two years. And the, one of the first people I met down there was a uh, Haitian by the name of Fritz Pierre Lewis. And he is one of my best friends. And he is 
the shining example, patient zero of the community advocate slash champion slash partner that you want on the ground. So I just got lucky. Like he's the most shining example you could ever have of that character of what it takes to execute this work, whatever it is that you're doing, whether disaster development, rainwater harvesting, digging wells, filtration, you need that person. So to answer your question, a long-winded answer is I, once I started growing the organization, I would go to the next places. I'm like, where's my Fritz? And I had a, I had a template. I had a, this perfect model of what I needed from a character standpoint. And like, certain boxes that needed to be checked. So one of our biggest strengths as an organization is our local teams that we build. And they're all built off this idea of the Fritz character. And there never, is a, there is a character like him in every, every village, every I was community, just going to say that, man. Cause I, so I did a, a short form documentary series for a number of years called surfing for change. Where we, I would just make these micro docs on environmental issues in coastal areas. Um, I was like, you know, 18 year old kid watching too much vice thought I was going to be a badass. And I was like, but I would go to these areas and I, and I totally agree. There is one of those, um, kind of community conduits wherever you go they're they're like usually have a big personality lots of friends they know everyone they know the chief of police they know the owner of this restaurant they're just well connected they've lived in that spot for their whole life and and if you find them like they are invaluable because they know the ins and outs of that culture. And and I'm sure you've experienced this. Like a lot of times it takes time just to to get up to speed on the cultural norms so you don't piss people off. Like, okay, how do you greet people? What are some words that I can learn? And and then who can you connect me with that will help, you know, bring this project to fruition? So I I know exactly what you mean around that every community has a Fritz. Oh yeah. And I mean, it wasn't a question of if I was going to find that person, that was my first order of business. That is my first order of business still to this day. We have programs in 40 countries. Like there's 40 Fritzes. I mean, and, and they, that is as much of rule number one as anything else. I mean, it's not about coming into a community and implementing clean water solutions. It's about coming into a community, finding your Fritz, establishing and enlisting and building this local team and network and then introducing the solutions and then integrating and implementing those things and then following up and this whole sequence that we have. But it all starts with the first order of business, which is finding your Fritz. And I don't care if it takes three months to find him. I don't care if it's a 17 year old kid. I don't care if it's uh, a politician. I mean, I've had examples of all of those. Now a politician and a 17 year old kid isn't the norm, but in some cases, after all of your due diligence in a community, you realize that is that's the best candidate. What are the qualities that make a Fritz? Uh, you na- you named a few of them. Um, so definitely personable, big personality, but most importantly, trust. So they and and you have to be a good judge of character. Like that's become one of my strengths now is I can judge character quite accurately and well. Um, And so 
you have to not only go off what they're telling you, but the way that the entire their entire environment is responding to them. And you have to cross analyze and do like kind of this cross section um, of judgment around and it, it takes a certain period of time to do that. And you have to see, okay, well, the police chief and all the kids and the grandma and the school teacher all know him and respond to him positively. They can't fake it. Like you, you can do a pretty good analysis if you let, let enough time go by where you have enough examples in front of you. Cause even if somebody was trying to manufacture something, there's too many other examples to go off of. So if this person, if the school teacher and the politician and the kids and everyone's responding positively to this person, okay, that box is probably checked. Like they have a good rapport within their community and with their community. Um, they also need to be of a certain level of intelligence for sure. Like that, and, 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 that usually comes with a certain level of education. Um, I typically like to find people that are entrepreneurs. So this would be a new layer within their scope of entrepreneurship because they're hustling and bobbing and weaving and trying to hustle because their, their conditions in their community are quite tough. So they're hustling and you're like, oh, well, if I can just get them to hustle for this, and they believe in it, then they're going to be great. So it's, it's this, there is actually some pretty clear order with our process. Um, but a lot of it's intuitive too. And you just have to kind of, like I said, spend that time. I mean, it's taken me sometimes months to really narrow it down. And sometimes it's taken me one day. Um, so just back up a little bit to what happens to people's water when a disaster occurs. Um, like why, why water? I mean, most, most people, you know, may listen to this have never been through a disaster. They've never had a water shortage. So just get down into the nuts and bolts of what actually, what it actually looks like when an earthquake, you know, in a place like Haiti happens. Well, the, so there's two, major prongs of waves for water one is disaster response disaster relief work and the other is like long-term development programs so those those are in areas where there's been no disaster but their everyday conditions are disastrous so you've been to many of these places we've been to many of these places through our surf travels and you come across a village where they just don't have access i mean basically what it means is that there's there's no infrastructure so people are living on wells they're living on maybe a semi put together communal water system, but it's, there's no treatment plant to it or whatever. I mean, you can be a homeless person in the United States and walk into a Seven Eleven and go into the bathroom and just put your mouth on the faucet and drink it and be fine. That is infrastructure. That's, that's plain and simple. Um, there's probably only six or seven countries in the world that actually have that, like truly have it. It doesn't mean that all the rest are, underdeveloped it just means you know nationwide top to bottom side to side everyone's covered now we have our pockets too we have flint we have you know these little there's places in appalachia that look like they could be in a developing country um but for the most part we are one of those japan germany um 
you know, there's there's a Australia, there's a range of of countries that have pretty much nationwide infrastructure, especially as it pertains to access to clean water. The other places that don't, they might be thriving in some other areas, but they have these, you know, water is just not one of the places, uh, one of the things that they're they're doing well. So that in and of itself prov- uh, produces a need for the work that we do. Now, when you have a disaster, so that just as a baseline, need, they need our program because these people suffering and having senseless sickness and death that don't need to. And it doesn't mean there's been any disaster. It just means that they don't have access to clean water. And so they're getting this senseless sickness and death. Um, now, with a disaster, it just compounds out one million times. So, for example, in Haiti, it ruptures all the wells. The wells weren't even clean in the first place, though. So now you've got an access problem and uh, a purification problem or, you know, making sure it's potable. So you've got already you've got all these issues before the the disaster. And then on top of it, it compounds it um, not just specifically around access to clean water, but their their homes are gone. Like you add the pressures of all the other things that and 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 a lot of their family members are dead and and, and just there's so many other things where are they going to work where are they going to get food now they're really thirsty on top of it and dehydrated it's a 100 degree heat so there's already most of the places we've responded to already have this like major major need underlying need and then the disaster it just compounds it to a level of it's basically it breaks you it just breaks people and a lot of uses for access to clean water or for clean water during disasters that you wouldn't think about, like cleaning wounds. So let's say you have access to bottled water because you have you you live in a city that just has access to that, so you can drink it, but your arm is ripped off from your wall of your house falling on it, and you're in some camp, uh, you know, some sort of refugee camp waiting to get some medical treatment there's there's a you know the medical professionals are shorthanded and all that kind of stuff and you're sitting there and they're cleaning your whoever's there is cleaning your wound with well water and you die of gangrene so there's just all these things that are they go along with the the water crisis that you wouldn't think about um and specifically during a disaster just these these so so preventable things you know yeah did you have um i yeah i took a first responder training course and still to this day think it was one of the most important things i could have done with my time like i'd put it up there with this uh advanced driving course that i that my parents got me when i was 16 years old it's called skip barber advanced driving they take you out to Laguna Seca racetrack and they put you in these Mazdas with super bald tires and you just gun it out on this open track and then they they have wet soapy water and then they'll intentionally get you into a spin. So then you have to learn how to to regain control of a car in a spin. And um, I think that that's a, a good analogy for disaster relief because an entire community is in a spin and if you can have that training and do those repetitions that we were talking about before, um, you can act well in a time when there's just so much panic. 
Yeah, I, I, I've done that driving class too. It's great, isn't uh, it? It's, it's so fun. Great. Yeah, and um, and I've done a bunch of classes like that in since. But no, before I got kind of into learning a lot of those things after because. I had this experience. I did not have any formal training. I do like to say and think and believe that the just just the the school of and I'm not going to say of being a pro surfer, but 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 the stage of pro surfing. So and and more specifically, just traveling the world at such a young age for so many years and having to navigate cultures and communities and stuff like that, even if it was still through a pretty specific lens and kind of in a bubble, you're still confronted with, especially when you step outside the competitive surfing realm and you're, you're doing more of the exploratory travel as a surfer. Um, I mean, I, I had been held up at gunpoint in the Philippines when I was 17, you know, like certain things that, you experienced through that stage and that, that platform that I think did prepare me for, for being a first responder. Uh, Surfer's journal actually did a piece a long time ago, like right, right after I started waves for water about the correlation or try trying to determine if there was a legitimate correlation between the background of a surfer being potentially good at first responder as a first responder. They actually broke it down with a few. Um, I, I could find it for you. It's really? I wonder what some of those characteristics are. I think a lot of the stuff I just said, you know, to be honest, I think it's, um, well, there's, there's, there's a couple things and it depends on what type of surfer you are, but like definitely if you like big waves too. So your ability to stay calm and, and I, I, I definitely had, natural abilities, um, that I didn't know I had that became apparent once I was thrust in that situation. So I, I realized I was, and I, and I like to surf bigger waves and I like, um, adrenaline and I like, you know, so I was familiar with pressure and, and competitive surfing. You have a lot of pressure and you have to manage that pressure. So I think there was certain baseline things that I had, but, I didn't realize that actually when shit was really hitting the fan, I would get more calm. I didn't, I had never been put to that level. I mean, I guess I did in those moments of that where I was surfing or certain things, but in situations where like it was chaos, death and destruction all around you and you, you are either going to break or you don't break. And, I don't know what it is that makes you break or doesn't break. I think it's probably actually just some sort of DNA or like innate thing within a certain individual. Because I remember being in Haiti like day three or something. And, and I, I would, I would only go out and do my work probably four days a week with like these, these interim days to rest and recoup as well as plan and get gather more Intel. So, I mean, I would only be out in the field in these different pockets of need in uh camps and stuff like that probably four days a week so the other three days a week when i was planning for my own work i would go out with uh medical triage teams and i was just in the business of learning and i remember we were walking with a group of doctors and nurses and we were in this new neighborhood that we got intel on and we had actually military military escort and we came around the corner and we'd seen i mean you we had seen at that point the first week, just the most morbid 
some of the most morbid things you could ever imagine. And, um, we came across this scene, this setting, and forgive me if this is a little bit too morbid, but, um, like basically there was a dead child on the ground and that child was, the, the body was being eaten by dogs. And, um, you, you, okay. It's a lifeless body. It's a, you can wrap your head around like, okay, the, what this equation is, right. It's this, 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 and this, if you start to like take the emotion out of it, but if you, if you aren't able to take the emotion out of it, it's probably one of the heaviest things you'll ever see ever. And at that point in time, the nurses and doctors that I with were that I was with were on their knees. I mean, completely lost it. And I'm sure it was a combination of a few things, not just what they were seeing, maybe the buildup of the whole trip and all the things they'd seen. That was the breaking point. And this one nurse came over to me and she was just sobbing and she's like, cause it's so sad. It's just so sad on so many levels. And she's, she's like, how are you handling this? And cause I was just like this. And I, and I looked at her and I said, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm, I'm not saying this is good or bad or right or wrong. I'm just, I don't know. And so I, I did dive into that a lot deeper over the next probably five years of diving deeper within myself, seeing not just these sort of skills or ways, mechanisms that allow me to be able to handle certain things and be, be like hyper efficient and, and functional, um, during crisis times. Um, but also just on a psychological level too, like learning, okay, well, maybe it's not necessarily coming from a good place. (laughs) The reason (laughs) you're like that. It makes me super good at my job and really suited for this work. But um, so I had to kind of dive deeper into that. But but those are examples of things that I learned in the moment about myself that actually made me very suited for this work. Are you familiar at all with Stoic philosophy? No. It's, it's, um, I'm not an expert in it at all, but um, – Marcus Aurelius and um, Cato and a lot of these um, old Stoic philosophers would talk. Put in very layman's terms, it's a philosophy where you focus your life on determining what you can control versus what you cannot control. Um, And a lot of uh, there's a, a book called Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. And in it, he writes about how he would meditate. He would have to go out into the battlefield and he would meditate on how he would respond to foes, you know, how he would respond to this day that would potentially bring him, um, you know, darkness and, and adversarial moments. And he would actually, you know, he would visualize in his mind, um, what he would do, which is a lot different than positive thinking. I, I think that positive thinking can get people into a fuckload of trouble because they're not actually preparing for a worst case scenario. Um, and and to your point about big wave surfing, there is absolutely a connection between big wave surfers and first responders. I mean, you look at uh, guys like Greg Long and Mark Healy, they're 
every bit as qualified of, as first responders as they are big wave surfers. And I think that they have that ability to just determine what is in their control versus what is not in control. And it that can illuminate a path forward to be able to have an experience like seeing, you know, a, a dead child being eaten by dogs and realize there's nothing that you can do about this and losing it is just going to make your situation worse. Yeah, I, I'm very well said. I mean, I, I've, I've talked long and very in depth about this topic um, and you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I, it's, it's two things knowing what you have control or don't have control over and the, and they're kind of intertwined or almost the same thing. And the other is just being able to compartmentalize at a hyper level, like at this crazy extreme level. So you know that this is sad, you know, this is devastating, but to take a page out of what you just said, you know, you can't necessarily do anything about it. Although you could focus your energy on, getting those dogs away and grabbing the body and doing that. I mean, that, that could be a really good use of your time if that's really what you're compelled to do. But I was on a one track mine dedicated to my purpose, to what I was. And, and I just had to weigh it out and you have to do it. You have to weigh it out like in this immediate, you know, very, very quick amount of time to say, okay. And you're, you're processing and analyzing and you're like, okay, that's that sort of out of my control. And that's not the best use of my time. That's not the best priority, no matter how hard or harsh that sounds. Because, and so it makes you sort of hyper-efficient in your task. So that's, if your task is surviving giant waves, then you need to, it's back, like what you just said about the, the Marcus Aurelius stuff reminded me of the Phelps thing I was talking about. Because it's this envisioning and visualization of, your the sequence of what you're going to be going through over and over and over so that by the time you're doing it you've kind of already done it and so you can't do that necessarily in a disaster zone because there's too many too too much of it and same i guess similarly in big waves is, is so much unpredictability but you do know what's within your control and you do know what your task is and for me my task was very clear so i would just push and compartmentalize on this crazy level and push that emotion to the side and go, I'll deal with you later. Yeah. I'm going to get this done. Yeah. I I've not, um, been in a disaster zone, um, as a first responder. Um, I have had to save a number of people out surfing and, um, have also gotten into some pretty fucking hairy situations in big waves. Um, but and it's it's weird to even talk about it and it's kind of, I feel kind of sheepish talking about it but I'm I'm just trying to be as honest as possible like it can feel really good to be able to act in one of those moments because it just deepens your your relationship with yourself on such a real level and when you can like be in that situation and act like there's there's an adrenaline that comes with it. There's a self esteem that comes with it. And um, uh, one of my favorite books is called Tribe by Sebastian Younger, and he talks yeah, right. all, a lot about war and how you know soldiers would sheepishly talk about how the battlefield was the best time of their life. They just felt this like deep bond, this this ability to act in the face of adversity, and it's just so 
it's so human. You know, we, we would not have made it to this level in civilization if we didn't have the capacity to act well in disasters. If you think about the amount of death and destruction that we have made it through as a species and the amount of people that have been able to act well in those moments, like we are set up for that. We do have the capacity for it. And and what Younger argues is that post-traumatic stress disorder doesn't actually come from seeing horrific situations. It's the mental schism of coming back to a society that knows nothing about disaster and and horror um and hardship, and yeah. hardship you know and, and he actually makes makes the case that um that israel is the country with the lowest cases of, of post-traumatic stress disorder um and he supposes that the reason for that is because there isn't this fracture between the military and the rest of the culture People actually know what it's like to be a soldier. Everyone goes into the military, whereas in the United States, you know, there, there's that great last scene in that movie, The Hurt Locker. I don't know if you ever saw it where, you know, this guy, it's a, it's a movie about a guy that defuses bombs uh, in the Middle East. And then at the very end, he's in this supermarket and it's this brightly lit supermarket. And there's this myriad of choices of cereal boxes. And he's trying to figure out what cereal box to get. And it's just such a perfect moment um and it just the cereal boxes say it all you know he's just like how oh. how does this matter um but yeah it can be um i i know what you're talking about it can feel really good to act in those situations well i think what summarizes or or sort of speaks to what you're saying just very concisely is it it really is the closest you'll ever feel to the ultimate and truest sense of purpose. So like everything we really are trying to do in the world, regardless if it's career or family or whatever is purpose oriented. You want to feel like you have purpose within your, your work and your professional life. You want to, you know, feel, and you know, you have purpose within your family. Um, and there are all these different levels of it, but being, faced with crazy adversity and knowing you have this crucial pivotal role to play, there's no greater sense of purpose. There's no greater sense of purpose, especially, especially for men. Yeah. And there is a difference there. Um, because just archetypal, um, stuff, it, it, it just, it just is, it's, it's in our wiring and we need to feel that. And there, the byproduct of, of feeling that is all of the um, self-confidence that comes along with it. And like, you know, this kind of affirmation that you get from, from being that person in that moment and, and making it through it and not only making it through it, but contributing and thriving through it. Um, there's not a lot of people that, that do um, mostly now because there's, they're just not really in positions where they're ever even faced with that. There's too many options. You know, it's like your, your, your thing about the Hurt Locker. I mean, I, I love that movie. I, I also love the book Tribe. Um, and Sebastian has been a huge sort of unspoken mentor to me. Um, um, not, not personally. I don't, I, I met him a couple times, but, um, but not that I've been able to like hang with him a lot, but just in following him and, um, my own, my own relationship to PTSD, um, 
reading and, and, and digesting all of the stuff that he's gone through um, has been a pretty profound impact on me. Um, but I, I can so relate. I think it was probably 2011 or 12. I just got back from Afghanistan, my second trip there. Um, at the peak, pretty much the peak of the war there. Um, and w- I was working in, in the most kinetic zone for fighting uh, at that time, which was Kunar Valley, which is, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the the film Restrepo that him and Tim Hetherington did. Yep. But great film. But, yeah. So Korangal Valley is here. Kunar is here. It's just, just, uh, divided by a ridgeline. So same, same zone. And, um, I remember getting back and I was living in New York at the time. Um, it was the best place for my business to grow. So I was living there. I was really wasn't living anywhere, but I, that's where I'd come home to. And I came back and I remember going like landing after just being literally on the front lines and, and trying to grapple a little bit with a lot of things, not just what I experienced, but what was behind all of that stuff too, because you can go down a wormhole for days about like war itself and that war. And, and then of course my role in it, my small role of humanitarian assistance within that and our partnership with them. And then all the, all the amazing Afghan people that I came in contact with and just the whole dynamic. And I got back and I found myself standing on the corner of Broadway and Prince, which is one of the craziest intersections. And I did not feel of that, that plane. I did not feel of that world that I was standing in. I, I literally didn't feel grounded or earth in that moment. I didn't feel like I was still in Afghanistan either. I, I just, it was this crazy physical feeling where I actually felt like nobody could see me, but I could see everything that was going on and actually stopped a woman and said, can you see me? And, yeah, and, and, uh, freaked her out. Um, but it, but it, it was genuinely the way that I felt because it felt so much like I, I felt so numb. I felt so, um, like nowadays with time travel, the way you can travel through, you know, I was in Kunar Valley it was so deep in the North of Afghanistan. And within like 30 hours, I was standing on the corner of Prince and, and Broadway in New York city with just the, and it's just a different world. I felt like the only thing I could relate it to was maybe like an astronaut, like the way they feel like they've experienced something that very, of course, a lot more people experience what I did, the soldiers and everything, but just they don't have necessarily the dynamic that I have when I come home. So I felt like very isolated, very alone and very like shell shocked, not just from Afghanistan. It wasn't just that it was, it was sort of a combination of a lot, all the places uh, until that point and got there. And then I remember going to a dinner party that night and never, never when I would come home, did I like to say where I was like if I was at a dinner party, because I didn't want to be that guy at the dinner table who was like, yeah, let's go back from Afghanistan. And, you know, it's like, that's just going to be a kind of conversation stealer for everyone else. And I, so I would never leave. I would just never, ever, ever. And it, it, the conversation came around to me at a certain point and, and somebody was like, a friend of mine was like, didn't you just get back or no, like, how's it going? How's Wastewater water going? And, and I just 
for some reason was like, it's going good. And they're like, where was your last trip? And I'm like, fuck, what do I say here? I just, you know, I'm like, well, because I had just gotten home like three days before. And I'm like, well, Afghanistan. And they were like, neat. Um, and, and then they looked, the person like looked over the other person. Hey, uh, hey, Bill, did you, did you hear, did you see they opened a new Trader Joe's down there by, uh, and because that's how alien I was. And that's the same thing as the cereal. You know what I mean? It's like, what I would never be mad at that because like, how could I ever expect anybody to understand? But it's so foreign and that disconnect that you're talking about that Israelis don't have, which I agree on that because I've worked with them. They're amazing. Uh, we have so much. And it's like somebody, one of your acquaintances says they just got back from Afghanistan and it doesn't, it just goes because you can't even begin to relate. But what you do relate on is the Trader Joe's that just went in. <laughs> yeah. That's ex- that's a hurt locker moment if I've ever heard it, man. It was nuts, dude. Nuts. Wow. Like, yeah. How have you um how have you reincorporated? What have been helpful strategies for you to kind of um mend those two worlds and uh maintain psychological stability? Um, I did end up going and seeing somebody <clears throat> like a PTSD sort of more, more focused around war, uh, veteran veterans of war, um, specialist around PTSD in that sense, not so much disaster related, but just got a good recommendation from some of the, uh, soldiers I work with. And we, we started, a um, a military veteran division of waste water called the clean water core based, um, and built, on the the backs of a lot of the relationships I formed in those early years of working with the the early years of waves for water working with the U.S. military, and we which we did in ten countries, um, so getting more intimately acquainted with them and just this th- this real thing called PTSD, um, I just sort of leaned leaned more into that and got a recommendation of this woman who I went and saw probably about six times. Um, and I'm not saying that that was the sole like thing, that, but it really did help me a lot. Like it really did because it just helped me piece together a lot of things. I didn't have the exact same type of PTSD that n- most of the people she worked with where, where like your, your best friend leg got blown off in front of you and you need to like deal or you killed a bunch of people. So mine was a little different, uh, but mine was still needing to unpack a lot of the stuff. Like I told you about the kid in Haiti, you know, that, that, those types of thoughts where it's, it's just so fucking unfair. Like to grapple with how unfair it feels is different when it's man killing man. There's a whole host of issues you get from that. I totally understand that. But when it's nature killing an innocent five-year-old boy, you're like, why? Like, and, and I know the why is still there when it's man killing man too. And during war, I, I, it, that's still there, but it's, it's more like, or, or a five-year-old who gets, gets cancer, you know, and dies. You're like, but that, you're trying to figure this stuff out. And I think there is no, no one answer, but I think that um, this specialist that I saw was obviously very well versed in just kind of helping me unpack some of those things and then give, giving me tools to, um, help process some of that emotion that maybe I, I pushed to the side in my compartmentalization. 
Um, and then the other big, big thing that really has helped me is, um, is breathing, you know, like, like box breathing. What's box Um, breathing? Box breathing is what the seals and all those guys do. Um, it's a certain type of breathing kind of pranayama. Um, but I can send you a, um, a link to the videos and kind of stuff that first got me into it. And it's basically this one really awesome, uh, seal trainer that breaks it down and why, and basically you're, you're inhaling for a certain amount of seconds, then you're holding your breath for a certain amount of seconds and you're exhaling for a certain amount of seconds. And then you're holding for a certain amount of seconds. So those, the equation of how many seconds on each of those four, because that's why it's called box breathing, because it's basically four, four sides. Um, the, the, the equation of how many seconds changes and varies upon what you're trying to achieve, but it's, it's the single most box breathing is sort of attributed to one of the single most efficient ways for them when they're like in the chopper about to jump out into like take out osama's um compound they're going to be box breathing like it's the thing that gets you from here and and i know a lot of people have variations of this and we you know we've talked about the big wave stuff and um i know the guys at the top are doing similar things um but but it really has it is i mean if i wake up in the morning and i do a meditation like i do like a 10 minute full rookie style meditation on 10% happier is the app I use. I love it. Um, it's the one that relates to me the most, but I do like a 10 minute meditation. I'll, I'll do my box breathing for 10 minutes. Um, I'm, and then if I do some stretching, like I'm gold, I'm, I'm ready for battle. I'm ready for anything. Yeah. That's just a regular, that's a regular practice for me. Um, I was thinking about you on the corner of that, uh, the streets in New York and wondering whether or not you exist. Um, and it's interesting that you came to breath because breath is what keeps you alive. It, it is yeah. the, it is the most basic form of you existing in this body, at least. Um, and I, I've experienced that, um, you know, in, in every extreme situation I've ever gotten into, like your heart, starts beating so fast it can be difficult to hear yourself and to get to to be able to do those slow exhales and feel your heart slowing down is just such it's such a an empowering feeling to just be able to maintain your physicality um in that moment i i talk about this a lot on my podcast but i i've taken another course that i recommend to everyone which is a performance free diving course with a guy named kurt croc who um like he he uh, uh trains people to these crazy world record free dives and in the in the this three-day course you know you'll go from i think i went from a two-minute breath hold to a five and a half minute breath hold at the end of it I mean, there aren't many things that you can do where you where you have that level of improvement over a three day period, and um, yeah, you just you really focus in on your breath for for you know for a lot of people, it's the first time they've ever done it in their entire life, um, and yeah, it's um, it's a real pipeline to spirituality, man. It's it's the totally. real shit. 
Well, I, and then like to that example of the standing on New York city, I mean, at, at that time I didn't have these tools. I didn't know. So had I just, just centered myself with my breathing, like I would have been fine. And I ultimately was fine, but, but that was just a good example to, to share with you of like where I was at and how disconnected and removed and, and sort of unearthed I had become. Because if you, if you think about that word like earth or, or unearthed, earth would be grounded, right? Grounded, centered, all these things that basically uh, symbolize like your own self uh, awareness and strength and all that kind of stuff. And then unearthed, it would be just floating around. Like, you know, you're just not rooted in anything. And it's so easy to be like that when you're traveling all the time, because literally you're unearthed, <laughs> you're in an airplane flying across, you know, you're, that's totally whack for a hum- for our bodies. And then you're in new cultures and new climates and new cuisines and all this stuff are other things that kind of pull you out of your roots. And I think being able to have that weapon in your pocket of, breathing that can always ground you or, um, the meditation or, and those kind of go hand in hand. Cause they're kind of, cause the breathing is a meditation and it's in its own right. Um, the other huge thing for me is physical activity. I mean, I know that that for me is just mainline like medicine. And, and if I'm being physically active every day, then I'm good. Yeah. I mean, kind of goes without saying, but it just is. Yeah early in the day man it's that's the the single biggest factor in a good day or bad day for me um if if there is and you've probably had a lot of this you know young men coming to you saying um i want to be tested I, i feel that you know this culture doesn't really have these um these access points easily available to us where we are tested, you know, throughout for thousands of years, there really, there were these um, traditions, there were initiations, you know, young men had to go out into the wilderness and, um, you know, hunt a tiger or um, do something on their own where they really got to access um, that part of themselves and be tested. Do you have recommendations of uh, programs that you, that you recommend for, for young people? Um, and, and obviously, you know, this goes for women as well. Um, of course. But I just, I, I agree with you that it is, it does tend to be a more common yearning uh, f- for young men. But do you have any, any kind of specific actionable steps for people? Yeah, I mean, for me, I don't have specific programs other than like the wilderness EMT stuff. I've done that. And like, you know, the, the, there's a range of, even like you said, the driving school or like for me, motorcycling, I did a flat flat track course. Any of these courses, they're, they're just cool. The diving one you said, like, uh, these are just good in introductions there. You're never going to get everything out of three days, but they're good introductions that tap that feeling that you're talking about. So you want to be tested, go do something you're bad at, like go do something you've never done. Put yourself out of your comfort zone. You don't have to go do a wilderness EMT course. You could just go like, what is your passion? Is it photography? Then go do something that totally makes you scared within photography, but you need to get scared. You need to get, pushed out of your comfort zone to feel that sense of purpose and to feel alive and to feel tested. And those are, those are the, the initial steps to then, then you can, once you've felt that feeling, you've tasted blood, then you can pursue something deeper. And for me, um, it's been when I'm going to go deeper into something, it's less about structured courses and it's more about diving into, okay, go do your free diving course 
taste blood, feel that feeling of being tested and pushed and humbled. And if you really want to do it, then if you're really like, oh my God, I, I want more, I want more, then go to the Philippines on your own and go diving and, and just send it, you know, get, get in the, get, get all up in it, you know, get, get in the thick of it yourself and all the things that come along with that. Just by going there and doing, you have your objective. You're going to go diving in the Philippines and it sounds romantic and totally scary and, and, and all those things because it's new. But just by doing that and immersing yourself, you're going to, you're going to encounter, I mean, a million other tests along the way because you're really pushing yourself out of your comfort zone without the, the structure of a course or that kind of thing. I mean, that's, that's just life experience for me is, um, you know, field experience is priceless. Are there ways that people can volunteer with Waves for Water? Yeah. So we have uh, our volunteer programs called the Courier Program, which is basically us piggybacking travelers that are already going places. So you, let's say you're going to go to Peru because you want to write a piece on Machu Picchu or something like that. Um, you would go to Waves for Water. You would click you know, get involved or whatever. And it would take you to the courier program. You would, there's a crowdfunding platform there. So you would basically set up like Kyle's Peru trip, you know, you name it, you do a little write up overview on it. You'd set a filter goal. So you would say five filters and this is why I want to take them and blah, blah, blah. This is my story. Then you have that as a crowdfunding and you're on URL. Then you would share it, get your community to basically pay for the cost of those filters. And then once you reach your goal, we train you. So we train you, but it's, it's not for everybody. It's, it's very much a DIY, um, sort of DIY humanitarianism platform. You know, it's made for you to be exactly what we're talking about. This, this is built so that it pushes you outside your comfort zone. You, you're going to be able to craft your own experience around this, but we're going to give you all the tools, knowledge, information, everything that you're going to need to implement those filters along your journey, but you're not going to come with us and, and wear matching t-shirts and have lanyards and have me tell you what to do. Like that's just not going to happen. So it's, it's really a DIY sort of guerrilla approach to volunteering and humanitarianism, which is what I like. Um, but for those people that really need more of that structure, it's probably not the right program. Right. Well, man, I commend you on, uh, on quite a life. I, uh, this is a strong podcast, and um, I was thinking about Waves for Water recently, um, just in in the context of coronavirus, um, because what you do, you know, you touched on it a couple times, but it, it's getting something very specific, very tangible to someone that really needs it. There's not this kind of like amorphous. Hopey, changey kind of stuff that you see a lot in the environmental and social change world, where you can't there's where you can't really point to the there there. And I and I I don't mean to talk shit, but I think there's a lot of organizations that are kind of just hobbling along because they don't have this actionable like this is what it is. This is what we can do right now. And in times of disaster, um, especially, but I think even in times of not, it is that specific stuff that you need, like you need, you, as you said, like your, your boy who's going to be on the ground, who can get these filters out to the rest of the community. Like you look at Corona right now, what do people need? Masks. Who would have thought? 
<laughs> who would have thought that it's masks that are going to be able to save lives? You know, it's, it is that specific stuff. Um, so I, I really, I commend you on, on being real. <laughs> that's all I got to say. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, I, that's an interesting point. And I think that what it really comes down to, whether it's a humanitarian initiative or, um, a new entrepreneurial endeavor that you have, whatever it is, right. If you look at it from a super baseline, like, okay, here's the market. What's the hole in it. And if your idea fills that hole, you have a pretty high chance of success period. Because there's obviously a great need for it. Like if your idea, if there's about 30 other things that are exactly the same as your idea and there's actually not a hole there, you might still produce something and have the right team and make something great. But like it became real simple to me when I saw the need on the ground and I saw the technology that existed already. I'm like, oh, there's just a giant hole. There's There's not a question of technology. There's a question of access. And I, I can provide that access so I can create a platform and a, and a, a basically a, a chain, a link in that chain. And the, right now there, that link is missing, or at least at that time it was missing. There's a lot more now, th- thankfully, but if you're looking at coronavirus or you're looking at, uh, like I said, and even just a business endeavor, if it's like pretty clear that there's like problem and solution and they don't know each other, then, and you're going to be connecting the problem to the solution, then you're pretty you're in a good spot yeah yeah and you don't need to be the best at something to have an impact you can just be a conduit and connect two different worlds that weren't that weren't connected before um you can make a lot of career like a lot of careers are made and a lot of solutions are created from just connecting people up yeah and i think also like like follow through to your, to, to add onto that is like, is the key to everything. You know, I've given many, many a speech, uh, uh, many, many speeches to, um, college kids and stuff like that, where they're like, you know, I just basically say like, for me, the, the, the key to success is doing what you say you're going to do because so many people don't, you're already going to, you're, you're already here. You don't even have to be that smart because if you just get up every single day and do exactly what you say you're going to do throughout life, you will be successful. Whether or not you're Bill Gates or not is a different story, but you will guaranteed. It's like a guaranteed formula because so many people don't do that. And then over time, even if you're not even the most intelligent person, like you're building credibility, you're building, you know, this level of responsibility that people can count on. You're, you're building all these things that people that are the deciding factors for them to hire you or to include you. And it's all it is, is just every single day getting up and doing what you say you're going to do. And beyond that, you begin to incorporate uh, an identity of believing that you're the kind of person that follows through. Yeah. And you're known for it. Exactly. And you're like, yeah, you know, and I can stand on that. I can't, I'm not, I'm no scientist, no engineer. I'm not going to invent something, but I can stand on this. And there's something to be said about that. So if you have, if you've identified the missing link in the chain and you're willing to do the work every day, you're good. 
<laughs> Dude, this was so fun. I want to yeah. finish on a strong note, but uh, yeah. you have an open invitation to come back on the show, and I would love to do one in person with you. Um, yeah, cool. things all over. Right on, brother. Thank you for having me. Yeah, that was fun, dude. That's our show. I'm going to play out a song called Drip by the Getaway Dogs. If you're a musician and you want your music played at the end of this podcast, you can email it to info at kyle.surf. I will link to your band page in the show notes below. You can also send me those voice memos that I love getting from you. I love them. It, they brighten my day. If I'm having a gloomy day, I'm like, ah, oh, I got a nice voice memo. Who is this person that listens to my, listens to my podcast? It makes me feel good. And we need more good feelings in the world. So bust out your phone, record under one minute of audio, give me some details about your surroundings, let me know who you are. And I'd love to play it at the beginning of the show. If you love this show, if you love this show, please give it a rating on iTunes. Or if you hate this show, give it a rating on iTunes. Um, But it helps me get more guests because if they see that there are a bunch of five-star ratings on iTunes, they're like, hey, maybe I'll give Kyle my time. So that's super helpful. Don't forget, we have the monthly box of goodies. Head over to my website, kyle.surf slash box of goodies, or just click the link in the description below. You guys, stay up. You're awesome. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Get out in the water, whatever body of water is closest to you. Lake, stream, ocean, or bathtub. It will make your day better. All right. See you soon. Into a thought like it's the flu and wasted all.
silhouette of a memory drip dropping ink in a blink in a bucket or if it'll come like a melody do you sing every other little moment you remember well i've been looking all around and i've been looking all over this town yeah i've been looking all around and i've been looking all over this town a little wet silhouette of a memory drip dropping ink in a blink in a bucket or if it'll come like a melody do you sing every other little moment you remember All around and I was looking all over this town. Yeah, I've been looking all around.